All right, so we're back in Acts chapter 10. We did these verses, but I'll just read them and then go to the next verse. When the angel who was speaking to him, that is Cornelius, had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were, were his personal attendants. After he had explained everything to them, to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, while this is going on, something else is happening with Peter. So that's why there's two visions and more things are going to happen. So one of the things that we see here is how God is supernaturally working to bring about his intended end. And that would be that there would be a church that had fellowship between redeemed people, whoever they were, Jew or Gentile, pagan, civilized, ends of the earth, Judea, wherever anybody was, whoever they were, all humans can believe the gospel and be saved. Now, they've already pretty well figured that out, but there's one more problem to be solved. Do I have to sit down and have fellowship with these people? Now, we think, well, why would anybody say that? Well, that's always been an issue, right? Even into America in our history, where some Christians won't fellowship with others, even though they're truly born of God, because they have some reason why they don't want to. And Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians. And there it was economics. The rich had fancy homes in which they had their love feast. Other people could sit outside and eat something less. Remember that? Paul rebuked it. So when it comes to table fellowship and the things that God does through the church, the qualification for being part of fellowship in the body of Christ is that you're redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we think that should be obvious, but it generally hasn't been. And it definitely wasn't yet here. So they still had to have a council in Acts 15 to see if they're going to decide whether the Jews would fellowship with Gentiles and whether the Gentiles had to obey the law of Moses. The answer was no, they did not. Okay, so now Peter preparing for these visitors that God was sending. Acts 10, 9 and 10. And on the next day as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. Now, by the way, this is not the normal time for prayer. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And I put the Greek word up there because it seems a little familiar to us. Ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy. And so he had a visionary experience. Now, as I mentioned last week, Cornelius saw literal angels that he could see with his physical eyes. Okay? They actually came in and went out, it says. And Cornelius obeyed what God told him. 
So this section of Acts shows how God uses a double vision, one by Cornelius and another by Peter, to show both of them that God was working his purposes through bringing them together. He's bringing together God-fearing Gentiles and a law-keeping Jew. Any comments? Okay. So here's the vision. Acts 10, 11 through 13. And he saw the sky opened and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, this sheet had various beings in it that would remind us of Genesis. Now, as you know, in the, under the Old Covenant, Certain foods were considered clean and permissible, and others were considered unclean. The word for sky here, by the way, uranos, is the word for heaven. Let me quote Dr. Polhill, who has a great commentary on the book of Acts. In Mark 7, 19b, Polhill says, Mark added the parenthetical comment that Jesus is saying ultimately declared all foods clean. Could somebody look up Mark 7, 19 and find that, please? This was, says Paul Hill, precisely the point of Peter's vision. Most people believe that Peter was Mark's source, by the way. God, back to Paul Hill, God declared the unclean to be clean. Mark 7, Jesus' teaching on clean, unclean was immediately followed by his ministry to a Gentile woman, Mark 7, 24 to 30. Just as Peter's vision, I'm still citing Paul Hill, regarding clean and unclean foods was followed by his witness to a Gentile. It is simply not possible to fully accept someone with whom you are unwilling to share the intimacy of table fellowship. The early church had to solve the problem of kosher food laws in order to launch a mission to the Gentiles. One more sentence quoting Paul Hill. Purity distinctions and human discrimination are of a single piece, unquote. Now, Eric, were you going to go ahead with Mark seven nineteen? Mark seven nineteen. Yes, okay. the parenthetical part. Okay, I'll just start from the the beginning. Okay, verse, verse nineteen, because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated. And here's the parentheses. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Yes. Now, I need to. Bring something up here. Somebody asked it at the end last week, an astute question after we close our class. And I had a good friend years ago who was confused about this. So I want to address something that some people think. 
people have told me that they follow the Old Testament food laws because they want to be healthy. And that was why God gave the laws, to make people healthy. And I dressed that years ago when I was teaching or preaching, I don't know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And I said, okay, there's a logical fallacy that has to be going on. Because if God was concerned about health, did Jesus suddenly become unconcerned? Are you following me? Was uh, God saying, Peter, you don't have to be healthy now. Go ahead. Just think about it. I was thinking about this when I was at Sam's Club the other day. What a weird thing to think about. Well, there was a reason. I was looking at fish. I'm looking at fish. I love fish. There's catfish. Catfish are unclean. Now, do you believe that carp are healthy and catfish unhealthy? I'll take the catfish. You have the carp. (laughs) It's fish if it came out of clean water. I mean, any fish can be in, uh, you know, tainted water. And and even that isn't necessarily man-made. There's a lake up in the boundary waters where minerals are typically mined. But in this case, none have been mined. And there's so much mercury in the rocks and the environment that there's a whole lake that nobody can eat a fish out of, not because any man polluted, but because there's mercury in nature. And the fish are full of mercury. And a hundred years ago nobody would have known that and they would have ate the fish, the pioneers or whoever, or native to that area, and got mercury poisoning because they didn't know about any such thing. Now we know. So we can't use this to prescribe a certain diet. And I'm not saying you can't have a certain diet, but this won't solve it for you. But the issue isn't just about diet. It's about table fellowship. Now, we may not, in our culture, think of table fellowship as a big deal. Eat here, eat there, eat with whoever. You eat with people at work, you might eat in the lunchroom, you might eat here, you might eat there. But in the ancient Near East, it was everything. And there are passages in the Bible that illustrate what a big issue it was. My favorite, and you probably know this as I keep talking about it, is found in Luke chapter 7. Luke 7 is where Jesus is invited to a house of a Pharisee and an immoral woman who was a believer at this point was coming in and weeping on Jesus' feet and her actions were filling in what typically would have been done by a host. And there was a huge problem because the religious leaders decided Jesus is no man of God. You don't let somebody like this into your table fellowship. She's not good enough for it. And ironically, she was doing what the host had failed to do. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. What? No, your sins are forgiven. Who loves the most? Why did she love Jesus so much? 
because she knew how wicked she'd been, but God had forgiven her sins. And when we have table fellowship and the Lord's Supper, we are saying we're here because our sins are forgiven. It's not where we've been. It's not who we were. It's not who we are culturally in the world out here. It's that we're forgiven sinners. The Old Testament food laws were designed to keep Israel separate along with other things like circumcision and Sabbath keeping. And the reason Israel needed to be kept separate was so that the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David would come true through the lineage of the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Once that happened, the need for that kind of separation went away. The word Pharisee means separate. We're separate from the world spiritually, but we're in the world, and God wants us integrated in the world. I'm ready to write an article on a book that tries to thwart that, and it's a popular book, but it's false. It's called it's about Benedict. And I've never seen so much bad theology in one book, but people like it. But no, we don't try to be separate from the world. Let me give you one more example, then I'll go to the next slide. One of my favorites, you know I love Luke Acts. I'm still in it. Two-volume work by one author, Luke. I love it. I, I've been going back and finding some of our old audios and videos so we can use them. Another one I just, I totally love is the power of God in Luke chapter 8. And I've mentioned this recently. The gathering of the Gerizines. This guy is in the worst possible condition. And he is described by Luke using every bad term that a Jew could ever think of. Death, demons, swine, sea, tombs, tombstone. It's horrid. And when God heals him, or Christ does, who is God incarnate, you would think that what he'd say to the man, you better come with me. This is really bad here. He wanted to come with Jesus and follow him. Jesus said, no, go back to your own people and tell them what great things God did for you. If God can trust somebody who is in that bad a condition to go back where he was and witness for God, he can trust anybody. The Ethiopian, when he met the Lord on the way back, he went on to Ethiopia. He wasn't going to find a church to join when he got there. If there was one, it's going to be the one he started. Dear saints, God trusts you to go through life like anybody else. And wherever you are, you tell what great things God did for you. You don't have to be a silver-tongued orator. You don't have to have a PhD in theology. You don't have to be somebody that in your mind you think, oh, I'm really special, I'm really great. You don't, no, no, in fact, that hurts. Uh, All you need to do is know what God did for you. That's all that these people knew. 
My sins are forgiven. My sins, which were many, are washed away by the blood of Jesus. God forgives sins through his son, Jesus. And that's what it means to declare the mighty deeds of God in Peter for the priesthood of every believer. So that needs to happen. But for the church to be what God called it to be, you can't be excluding people from Christian table fellowship because there's something you don't like about them. Does that make sense? Well, thank the Lord that that we see these things. We're blessed that we do. Last slide. And then I've got two more special slides for a discussion I've been wanting to have for months and months. And today I think we'll have time. But you never know. We've still got 35 minutes we can spend on this one. So this is really amazing in the Greek. But Peter said, oh, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Maybe thinking back on this, if Peter was the source for Mark, that's where that parenthesis came from, from Peter. Thus he declared all foods clean. Later they remembered what Jesus said. Oh, yeah. This happened three times for emphasis, because this was not easy for Peter. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now, this is kind of an ordinary translation. I'm not saying it's a bad one, no American standard. But in the Greek, there's more going on. First of all, there's a lesser to greater argument. That's a very biblical way of arguing things. If the lesser is true, how much the greater? The lesser would be the food. If God can cleanse all food, and food is lesser than people, do you think God can cleanse all people? The obvious implied answer is yes, he can. Yes, he can. And then the one that I found, I love finding these things. There's a negated imperative. Stop. Stop making unclean. Now, a negated imperative like this with a may... Yeah, that's it. May plus the imperative. Stop. It's going on, but stop. No. Yeah, that's exactly right. The imperative in the continued tense. That's what I meant to say. Let me quote David Peterson, another good commentary on Acts. Peter, says Peterson, must acknowledge God's right to determine what is clean and to redefine boundaries for the gospel era. The message was so important that it was given three times before the sheet was taken back into heaven. Peter must not treat any of the creatures in the vision as profane since God has declared them to be clean. Ekotherison, cleanse them. Continues Peterson, what was implicit in the teaching of Jesus is now made explicit. The clean and the unclean provisions of the law were temporary 
designed to keep Israel a holy and distinct people until the time when Jews and Gentiles could receive the forgiveness of sins and sanctification on the same basis through faith in Christ. And then, for example, it says in Acts 15, 9, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. So God is saying, stop this. Don't do it. Now, as I said, I'm preparing to write an article. Finish the book. Found all the problems and got them categorized. I'm making an outline. There's always going to be somebody who comes along who doesn't get this. All right? And this guy is claiming if we're going to be good Christians and raise our kids, then we have to have a Christian culture. In other words, we have to live in a nation with a Christian culture. Now, he says that's the way it is. Does the Bible ever say that? Now, when God saved the Jews in Jerusalem, was there a Christian culture? No, they were hated. When God saved pagans, was there a Christian culture? No, they were pagan. When God sent the gospel around in the book of Acts, were there Christian cultures anywhere? No, there was no such thing. And there was no such thing until several hundred years later. And this fellow says we have to get a Christian culture so we can not have the dark ages. But the dark ages didn't start until there was a Christian culture. Constantine, right? I've studied history. Why don't people get these things? Okay, The whole idea is that Christianity will spread anywhere, no matter how much hatred against us, how much hostility against us, no matter how pagan the culture is, no matter how wicked the morals of our country are, and no matter how badly we're represented in our government, God will establish his church. And he will do it through the means he's always used. He will redeem people, forgive their sins, wash away their sins, give them power and authority to preach the gospel, and send them right back into whatever pagan place they came from to preach the gospel. And that is simple. Tell what great things God did for you. And then the church are the called out ones who gather together under the means of grace. I don't think that's hard to figure out. So why is it so complicated? Did God ordain that there be monasteries? No. Well, this guy is saying, oh, yeah, we got to have that. And Christians are applauding him. Oh, this guy this is a great book. You got to read this book. What? When will somebody get a clue? I'm not that great. I'm an old man. And to me, it's obvious. So what's wrong? Why can't we see this? Well, anyhow, we should be finding this out right here. In fact, I think the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was prophesied. It's not the tribulation or the millennium or the Antichrist. But 
they would have just stayed right there in Jerusalem if God didn't do anything else. That would have been the only church there ever was. But God sent them all over. Yes, go ahead. I'm looking at a related verse, Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups, Jew, Gentile, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Uh, so here I so here I believe we're seeing in Acts 10, 14, 16, we see the beginning of that, the culmination at the cross, and then we see in the temple there that that barrier. So you can see Christ breaking down the barriers. Remember the the veil was torn in two. It's clear to us, but it, some people still don't get it. But we need to just stay right on top of this because fallen human nature is everybody's prejudice in one way or another. Now, it may be about something unimportant like which team you root for. (laughs) But (laughs) when it comes to who God adds to the church, God does that. And God is not a respecter of persons. And we're not called to be either. We're not, we cannot be respecters of persons. So the Lord told Peter to stop. With no further comment on that, there's something that's been sitting on this computer for four or five months and deserves to be discussed. And then the next time I'm in Sunday school, we'll start with verse 17. This is the one. Oh, yeah, I love this one. I may have shown it to you once. This passage, Deuteronomy 29 29, has more applications than we probably even think about. And I want us to start together teasing out the applications. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, what I, I see three categories of knowledge that we need to understand. Three categories. Number one, how do we know things by ordinary means? We learn general revelation. Do you understand the concept general revelation? God wants us to see and to make categories. Categories are good. Eastern religion wants to erase categories. We need categories. When God created Adam and Eve before the fall, he created all these different things, categories, different kind of beings, different kind of creatures, Foliage and all these things more and more. As God works, there's more categories. And then gave Adam the job of naming the animals. The privilege of naming creates what? Categories. The ability to see and define and describe and to use categories. When you study science and math, You learn more and more and more categories. The brain surgeon knows more than the paramedic about the human brain. Why? Because 
he or she knows categories about the brain that ordinary people don't know. And you use words to define categories. God had Adam name the animal, so we're supposed to define categories. I use this in my book Against Emergent. They're wanting to get rid of categories. All is one, and God is in everything, is erasing categories, but God wants categories. The other type of knowledge, there's two more. Another one is what's revealed. See, but the things revealed. The things revealed is what we call special revelation. Special revelation is what God has chosen to reveal through his ordained spokespersons, such as Moses and the prophets, Christ and the apostles. So we know what God said. Moses and the prophets, Christ and the apostles. Special revelation comes to us in words that are chosen by God in human language, meaningful to God and to the hearers. So we know what God said. One of the tactics of liberalism, in this book I just read, uses this tactic, will say this. Nobody can figure out what the Bible means, so therefore we're going to follow tradition. Have you ever heard that argument? Well, we can't know that. And here's what they say. Because people dispute it, it means we can't know it. People dispute whether we can know anything. So there isn't anything God's ever said or done that somebody didn't dispute. If God said, thou shalt not steal, somebody will dispute it and say, well, he doesn't mean that. If you think you need something worse than the guy that has it, just go ahead and take it. We won't call that stealing. Well, if somebody does that, does that prove that nobody can understand what God said, thou shalt not steal? No, it doesn't prove that. It proves that some people are rebellious and they won't listen to God. Yeah, I was just going to mention, and I I don't know, I mean, I was thinking about uh, this prayer that Paul says, he says um, in Ephesians 1.16 through 19, it says that the that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, uh, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having your, uh, your eyes and hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope it, to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's revealed to us, but, you know, it's still Christ has to continually open our eyes. Okay, and, yeah. let me answer that. I, in fact, I like that verse in helping us understand First Corinthians. The term revelation doesn't always mean something new that's never been revealed before. It can also mean understanding the significance of what we already know to be true. So Paul is praying that we see how significant it is that we have an inheritance in Christ. That we do has been, Paul told us. So when it says that one of you has a revelation or that you may all prophesy one by one, what we're doing and what we do in this class is we exhort one another, remind one another, or share how God helped us understand something. See, Later, good example of this would be 
what we're reading here, what we just did in Mark, uh, Eric. Peter already knew that Jesus declared all foods clean because he was there when it happened, right? But Peter still had to get something else to have. He had to have all these miracles so he'd understand what God already said. And then when he went to the council in Acts 15, he said, well, this, this, and this happened. Therefore, the Gentiles don't have to keep the law of Moses. Well, they already knew that. In fact, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. But, so the revelation isn't a new revelation. It's understanding the one that's already there. And it doesn't go beyond the words of what's already there. So if I understand thou shalt not steal to mean pay my taxes, which Paul defines it in Romans 13, it's not that thou shalt not steal now change this meaning. It's that I understand the implications of it. Eric, would you agree with that? Okay. Now, so we had general revelation, which is involved defining categories. Then we have special revelation, which is what God has given through inspired scripture that's inerrant and infallible. The third category is called secret things. The word occult means secret. Occult, which is a category of spiritual knowledge not revealed by God. You get it from diviners, psychics, horoscopes, new revelations. These are things about the world of the spirits that are not revealed in Scripture that we may want to know, but God hasn't chosen to reveal. It's forbidden, and we're not allowed to do that. Now, there's other things besides the occult that we don't know. So we don't know all the details about the spirits other than what the Bible tells us. Here's what we don't know. We do not know the secrets of the human heart. One of the things that we learn in the New Testament is that God knows the heart. One of the things we know in Jeremiah is the heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? I, the Lord. We don't even really know our own hearts. Is that right? We may have bad motives that God's still working to get out of us. Here is the big mistake we make. That's why I wanted to talk about this, because I catch myself doing the wrong thing here continually, and I'm probably not the only one. I start thinking I know something I do not know, and then take action based on what I think I know that I do not know. Did that make sense? Okay. You think it made sense? Good point. What I mean is this. I don't know somebody else's hidden motives. Okay? So you come to church or you do whatever, wherever you are, and somebody had a bad day. But some of us never do have a bad day. No, you, you know, we all do. And so you're thinking about your bad day or you can't pay your bill. Whatever it is you're thinking about coming to church. And somebody else sees you, well, that person is angry with me. Or we think something like that. 
But we don't know that. But if we start making our decisions or if our spiritual well-being depends on that our hunch about something we can't know anyhow is true, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. We do not know what cannot be known by ordinary means. And we've all been proven wrong about this. There's times where we're thinking somebody was thinking such and so about me. But later it comes out that it was totally wrong. It wasn't what was going on whatsoever. As someone who's been in ministry for many years, I've learned that I cannot do that. I don't know what I do not know. I can't spend my time worrying about what I do not know. If I can't, if I do not know because I cannot know, I don't have more knowledge by worrying. Eric, you should be up here where the mic is. Okay. Well, you can't do much worse at disturbing people than I already have. (laughs) I was just going to mention, Bob, I love this Deuteronomy 29, 29 passage and this prohibition against secret knowledge. It's also reiterated in Galatians 5.20 in the sins of the flesh list where uh, Paul talks about part of the sins of the flesh would be idolatry, sorcery. And sorcery comes from the Greek term pharmakeia, where we get the term pharmacy. And what he had in mind, I think, as he penned that, is what the ancients were doing is they would use drugs to get themselves in an induced state of consciousness or an altered state of consciousness induced by the drugs so that they could directly contact the spirit realm and get secret knowledge. So the point being is not only does the old covenant prohibit the secret knowledge, Deuteronomy 29.29, but here we have a clear affirmation in the new covenant in Galatians 5.20 that secret knowledge is also forbidden. Right. Very good. Very good. Absolutely. Now, I want somebody to look up and read 1 Corinthians 4.5. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. There it is. Here comes the mic. 1 Corinthians 4, 5? Yes. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come from him come to him from God. God. Okay, don't pass judgment before the time. What might we pass judgment on? Motives of men's hearts. So we think we know that somebody else has bad motives. Paul says, you don't know that. You don't know that. We don't know the motives of somebody's heart. We don't know what we don't know. Now you might say, Now, I've said it this way. We do not know what cannot be known. Does that make sense? That's a valid category. Think about it. If I can't know it because by nature it's unknown, then why should I be worrying, making decisions, fretting, losing sleep, getting anxiety over what I can never know anyhow? I have to tell myself that every week. In fact, sometimes four or five times in a week. Try it. Just remember what the Bible said. Oh, I don't know that, so why am I worrying about it? Okay. 
There's some things that can become known, like art of fish biting. You go to the lake, and if they do, then now you know. Go ahead. Yes, Peter. So, Bob, a couple of many times you refer uh, in the in the course of your uh, sermons, you know, we shouldn't check our brains at the door. What you're referring to is discerning judgment based upon what we can know. Amen. Okay. I thank you for reminding me of that. If we spent our time learning what we can know, which is what God said in the Word and in various logical implications and applications of that, we'll grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. If we spend our time thinking about what cannot be known, we'll have anxiety and worry and we'll gain nothing. And you kind of stole my thunder because, you know, um, First John 5 talks. And I, well, I was going to ask, first of all, you know, is this part of the sanctification for believers? And then there's, of course, the category of non-believers who just don't know. But in First John 5, it uh, talks about how you may know that you have eternal life. We know that he hears whatever we ask for. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. We know that we're of God. We know every, you know, it's we know, we know, we know, until he finally says that we may know that we have eternal life. And so the question is, is it our human nature to focus on the things that we don't know versus if we would focus on what he does say and we can know? Very good, very good. As a matter of fact, I've got two sermons already to preach in the can. I don't really have a can, it's my computer. (laughs) But uh, one of them, I pulled out from 1 John 10 times where John says, by this we know, or implies it. By this we know, by this we know, by this we know, or we know by this, same idea. And I have a slide, or two slides, five and five, with those things, and it's a good point. Everything... John says, by this we know, is something objective that can be known through Scripture or the promises of God. Yes? Um, uh, You had mentioned that um, the things that we can't even know, the secrets of our own heart, uh, and it made me think of Hebrews 4.12, where the Word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and how it um, it cuts down to the point of um, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Um, so that the word of God will do that work God judge that. within us, that we, we may not be able to judge those motives of others' hearts, but that the word of God will work within us from the inside to reveal some of those things about ourself. Um, yeah, the God, God's word exposes things. And I'll say this as well. God cleanses hearts. He cleanses us from the inside out even concerning things we don't understand. I think God is cleansing us more than we even know. We've got worse problems than we realize. Okay, and God is working from the inside out to sanctify his people. How do we know we're being sanctified? By the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's working in us. What shows up when God is working in us. Love, joy, peace. You know one I've been thinking about on that? The joy of salvation. And 
I looked up a bunch of verses and gave them to Diane to put on the bottom of prayer requests that I found on, in the Psalms about joy. And I go be, be going along worrying or whatever. And I literally think, don't I have the joy of salvation? Am I saved? Yes. Is joy a fruit of the Spirit? Yes. So where's the joy of salvation? Well, the reason it doesn't seem too evident is I'm trying to understand things I don't know, like what somebody else thinks about me. Do you understand that? It's all of the stuff we can't know confuses, creates anxiety, fear, problems. The Holy Spirit comes to us through the Word. The Word of God is always true. And He only exposes something because He's cleansing it. And as He's cleansing it, what shows up? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, kindness. The, the Lord is working in us. You don't have to go to a class based on human wisdom for any of these things to develop. I've been going back and forth in a positive way with a guy who's exposing Rick Warren's shape program. Okay? It's all based on human wisdom. And, well, we can't know anyhow or whatever. No, I just asked one question. Is the joy of salvation in my life? Yes or no? And if I'm saved, it should be there. And maybe I'm drowning it out by thinking about a bunch of stupid stuff that I don't need to think about. Go ahead, Brother Eric. I think one of the other fruits of the Spirit is just that we love God's Word. And I have listened. I listened uh, yesterday uh, on the YouTube, I guess it was, uh, on a lecture given by a man who I will not name, a famous man at Princeton. And what I really was struck me was that he was quoting all kinds of other scholars, but he didn't quote the Bible. I think he had, I think he made a reference twice to some biblical reference, and I believe on one occasion the entire class laughed because it was like, oh, look, he's, he's referring to Scripture, you know. So God has given us everything we need to know in the Bible, and we, and we just need to pay attention and realize with our own humility that we get it wrong a lot that's why we have each other. That's why Jesus gave us the church and God's word. But right now, we're in so much trouble in what I would call Christendom because so many of the scholars are more interested in what each other has to say rather than God's word. Yeah, I read scholars who help me understand the Bible. If they don't do that, they don't help me, so I don't bother with them. But if they do help me, then that's good. Yes, Lonnie. Um, yeah, I just want to make a small comment. Uh, don't, as a Christian, don't trust your emotions. Just go by what the Bible says. Uh, we have joy, and certainly we don't feel joyful every day, uh, but we have it. Yes, we have and, salvation. Yes, and uh, just don't go by your emotions because right. that can set you off into all kinds of directions. Very good. And by the way, I've been try- I, right now there's a 
she may listen to this now, but there's a lady in another state that, w that I've been trying to help who had horrible, horrible problems, but she's getting better and better. And I've been telling her, just believe the promises of God and have your mind trained by the word of God. And so for a long time, I just would send her an email. Here's a promise of God. Believe this. Well, what about this and this? I feel, no, here's another promise of God. Believe this. But here's another promise of God. Believe this. Make sure it's real. It's not like the health and wealth where they say God promised that you're going to be rich, otherwise you failed. That's not a promise of God. But if it is, God cannot lie. Believe the promises of God. And God has promised those who are saved the joy of salvation. I believe that. And it's helped me recently to remind myself that that's true. Where's the joy of salvation? Well, I think I'll think about that instead of whatever else I was thinking about that I can't fix. Now, I have another one that we're going to do another time when I get done early. I'll just show you what it is. Welcoming the love of the truth. I could probably write an article about this. But do we love the truth and do we welcome it? Think about that one. Oh, here's the verse if you want to do your own study. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11. Yes, Eric. Well, there's a verse in the Bible that says if, if we draw closer to God, he'll draw closer to us. And, you know, it was kind of reminding me, God, you know, he gives us what he wants us to have to honor him. Sometimes he says we pray and we just have selfish desires. Right. So, like, sometimes I think at work when I'm, you know, thinking, you know, I want, you know, joy right now, but I'm not willing to open my mouth and acknowledge God to any of my coworkers, but I want God's joy because it's like I'm sad or something. It's like, you know, God gives the gifts for him. So, you know. Well, he wants us to believe what he said. Yeah, exactly. Now, that, that brings one more thing, and then I want to close with prayer. I was, I've been thinking about this. In this book that I'm going to rebuke in my article, this guy goes off. He hardly ever talks about Scripture, but the one he talks about is Mary and Martha. That's the most misused Bible verse. It's not about personality types. And so for years, people say, oh, I'm a Martha. So I guess that's bad. Listen, let's get our categories right. The better portion was Jesus incarnate is on the face of the earth teaching us and he's only with us for a little time then he goes up into heaven when Mary and Martha went on Jesus was physically bodily on the face of the earth talking as it was with the disciples and I'm telling you if Jesus if this was the millennium and Jesus walked in here I'd be all done teaching Right now, I have nothing to say. I want to hear what Jesus said. That's what was going on. But this guy writes a book saying the real holy people go live in monasteries because they want to draw near to Jesus. And so they chant meaningless repetition every hour on the hour. They take oaths in rebellion against Jesus. They chant meaningless repetition in rebellion against his apostles. They claim that they're choosing the better part, so they're more pious. And this guy claims 
that this oath they take of obedience to this man-made law that they keep all their lives, the whole life they're trying to repent. What does the Bible say about repentance? It happens at conversion. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you think if you spend 50, 60, 70 years taking an unbiblical oath, claiming to be holier than everybody else, chanting every hour on the hour, saying prescribed prayers, trying to be better, trying to be holy, trying to be great, in a monastery, that somehow eventually you're drawing closer to God? No, you could not be further from God. You're in rebellion against God, and you need to repent, get out of that monastery, renounce your oath, believe the promises of God, and stop this foolishness. Well, a guy wrote a book saying that's the, we're supposed to look at them as our role models. And evangelicals are endorsing the book. Wait until you see my article. It's just blowing my mind. Well, that's what I've been thinking about. Dear saints, we draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And if we want to listen to him, we read and study his word and understand it. Jesus is in heaven. It says he hears us. Amen. But he's not physically here teaching us. His teachings are found in the scriptures. What you're going to say, and then close us in prayer. Just going to say one thing, and I, maybe I'm, uh, if you, I, repentance, we repent and repent means to turn around. And if I keep repenting all my life, I'm going to get kind of dizzy coming around. <laughs> Just to kind of end this with a little humor, I guess. But we repent, and, and then we turn. We turn to Jesus. We do that once, and we stay there. Amen. So, you could repent of some bad thing, but it isn't something you have to try to get for the rest of your life. Go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the word that you have revealed to us. And we ask that you would help us always, Lord, to, to know what you've revealed and to understand it and to take it to heart and to be obedient to you, that we will draw close to you through your word and through obedience to you, and that we would always love you as you love us, and that we would love others enough to share Christ with them and to do that in a faithful way. And we just ask that you bless the service coming and that you bless each of us here. In Jesus' name, amen.